Uh, If you have your Bibles, take them out. We're going to start our morning looking again at the book of Genesis. And I I do hope this is being helpful to you. And uh, um, today I think uh, is, I think, really an eye-opener. So let's read this portion. That's printed in your bulletin. I'm also going to... uh, uh, you have it in your Bible, but I'll be reading it to you, and you can follow along if you have your Bible or in the bulletin. Uh, and I'm probably going to skip the uh, the verses 10 to 14. Those are just the description of the land that was surrounding Eden. I'll talk about that in the sermon, but uh, I will read the rest of the, the chapter, starting in verse 4. So now hear God's Word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and they were when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush was in the field uh, and uh, no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the ground and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature or soul. And the Lord Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every green tree that is pleasant to the side and every food that is good. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Down to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. The Lord God commanded him, saying, You shall or may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and birds and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was found no helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh. And with the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're looking at the book of Genesis. Let me say a couple things, uh, preliminary things that I hope will find helpful. If you look at your Bible, and I have this... This is my Bible. It's better than your Bible. Um, <laughs> this is my Bible, and it's, it just a, it's just the Bible. It has no notes in it, uh, no cross-references, nothing. It's just the text. And you can see it's rather small. It's, not a, you know, it's just a thin Bible. 
Most of the Bibles that you see today, and particularly in a church like ours, you'll see these big, thick study Bibles that are full of notes. And those are great. I have some of those too, but I, I just can't, I can't carry it around with me as easily as this. See how light it is. Plus the print's big. So uh, if, if you can do this, like you, said, you look at that and you say, oh, man, I can't understand. I've tried reading the Bible, blah, 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 blah. I know it is hard to understand sometimes. But let me challenge you to do this. Kids as well, young people as well. Parents do this with your children. And if you have never opened the Bible again, just do this. Read the first three chapters of Genesis and then listen to what I'm telling you. And if you read, if you understand the first three chapters of Genesis, that's just these first two pages. If you understand those first three chapters of Genesis, the way I'm explaining it to you, everything that's in between here and chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, which is here, now check it out. I mean, look at that. All of this, you will begin to understand. You won't understand it all at once, but you'll start understanding. It'll start to make sense to you. This little bit, three chapters, and the two chapters at the end are tied together, believe it or not, even though they had no knowledge of each other. Well, the, old, the, the new one doesn't know about the old one, but the old one, Moses, he didn't know about what was going to happen in Revelation. It is truly remarkable if you just give yourself to that one thing in the next few weeks, you will be utterly amazed. I promise and uh, I will try to help you as we go through it. We looked at the creation of the world. I told the, the young folks that I met with this morning, and I hope some of you will come in there if you have uh, questions. Next week we're going to talk about dinosaurs and some other stuff um, that you may find interesting. The, the biblical account, the biblical story in these first three chapters of Genesis are talking about things that have to do with God and His people. They're not scientific. They're not talking about scientific things, and we don't want to make them say that because they don't. At the same time, let me say this. Science has nothing to say about religion either. Nothing. They cannot comment. Scientists cannot make one comment about Almighty God or any other God or all the gods put together. Whatever's out there, they have nothing to say about that. The minute that the word God comes out of a scientist's name or, or mouth, he is simply speculating. He doesn't know. He's just throwing out an idea that he has. He cannot prove God. He cannot disprove God. And neither can we prove or disprove God. He's not provable because by definition, if you could prove that He existed, He wouldn't be God. He'd be something else. Because He's God, we don't look to prove Him. And the Bible is not a proof. In other words, Charles Darwin was not sailing around the world in the beagle thinking of ways... The beagle was a boat, not a dog. Sailing around the world thinking, how can I disprove the Bible? And scientists aren't sitting in their labs thinking, how can we disprove the Bible? In fact, many scientists believe. And Christians should not take their Bible and abuse it. And I'm saying abuse it by making it say stuff it doesn't say about science. 
They're, they're two different things. So having said that, when you look at your Bible, take it as it is, what it is. And that's our job here in the church, my job in particular, to help you see that. And if I'm wrong about something, I'll be the one in trouble. You will not be in trouble. But what you are getting here, what I'm sharing with you, helps you and will help you make sense of a lot of other things. So let's go. Let's look at what is being said. The prologue, which we looked at the past two weeks about creation, there's this beautiful, prosaic, poetic hymn song of creation uh, about the days of creation, about God resting. It's, it's a song or a chant. Uh, we don't really know exactly how it was, how it was handled. But that is the prologue to not only the book of Genesis. Listen, not only Genesis, the whole Bible. That's why I'm saying. You get down this, these three chapters and the rest of the Bible pieces start to fit into place. And it can make your Bible a joy to read because you're not trying to figure out how to, how to squish it down into the 20th or 21st century, but you're letting it speak from its own vantage point and it does have something to say to every century and every human being so after the prologue there are 10 divisions you remember I explained to you the divisions in the book of Revelation last uh, months ago the book of Genesis is just like that it has 10 clear divisions and they're called Toledo it's the word you see, this is the, gener- the generation of this person or the generation of that person. This word Toledo in Hebrew is used ten times and it delineates the stories of God's redemptive purpose among only that group of people that existed in the ancient Near East. Not talking about global people. But it's talking about this one group and, listen carefully, this, this will make all the sense in the world to you, how this group, and he's going he's gonna to pick out one of those groups, and he's going to say how this then impacts everybody else in the world. Every human being ever born, anywhere. But right now, Moses is concentrating on this. Why? Because Moses is with a group of, we don't know how many were there, the Hebrews, there was probably hundreds of thousands, maybe a million. We don't know how many people were in the group that left Egypt. It was a lot. We don't know how many. Anything that somebody says is speculation. We don't know. But Moses is with them, and they're out in the wilderness, and at night they're building fires, they're sitting around their campfires, and and Moses and his crew of elders and teachers and prophets are telling them these stories. These stories were not written down, they were oral. And they were telling them these oral traditions and explaining why they were in the wilderness. Listen, why were they in the wilderness? And why were they going to this place none of them had ever seen? Or, and they didn't have the internet, they couldn't go to, to Google Earth and go look at it. I mean, they didn't know, they just knew it was over there in the east somewhere. And that promises had been made about this land to our forefathers. And so we're going to go back here. And he's trying to tell this group of hundreds of thousands of people why they're there and why they're going to this promised land. 
And so these ten Toledotes explain this. And I'll give them to you quickly. If you want more detail, I'm happy to send it to you in an email or make some little charts or something that will help you. But the first one is the heaven and the earth. That's the one we just read. Then there's Adam. Then Noah. Then the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then there's the account or the generations of Shem. Then there's the account of Terah, which introduces us to the patriarch, the father of our faithful, Abraham. Then there's a whole section in the book of Genesis about Abraham. Then we are introduced to two Toledos, one about Ishmael, one son of Abraham, one about Isaac, the other son of Abraham. Then two more Toledos that finish the book of Genesis, one about the two the uh, one about the son Esau, son of, of, uh, of Isaac, and the other Jacob, the other son. These two twins who were born to Jacob's wife, wives. So the Toledot that we're going to look at this morning, the book, the section, is the one I just read to you about the heaven and the earth. And so... Over the next three weeks, just as an incentive to come, don't miss these, because the next three weeks we're going to look at three Toledos, or one Toledoth, that is this one, that's broken down into three sections. And here's what they are, and then we'll look at the first one. The first one is life inside the garden. Chapter one was creation. Chapter two is what life looked like in the garden. It's not a second creation account. You may have heard that. It's not. It is just a description of human and animal expansion in the garden, a very good place, a very good garden, all right? Next week, we'll talk about the, ser- the serpent who appears in chapter 3. Don't miss that. It's so cool. And then finally, uh, the third act of this, this great story is life outside the garden. And that starts in chapter 4 and continues to Revelation 21. Life outside the garden. Chapter 4 to 21. By the way, something very interesting. Each one of these stories in this first act, or this first, uh, uh, these first three stories that that are, are different acts, each one of these acts ends with a song. A poem. And I just read you the first one. So what did Moses... Look, you can't under... I hate to do this, but many of you... If you came to theology class, how did I tell you you had to understand your Bible? There's only one way to understand your Bible. And that is, look at it as it was... What it said. What does it say? Who wrote that? Or what kind of person wrote that? To whom was he writing? Who was he addressing and why? Now, once you know those things, it's very simple. Who wrote it or what kind of person wrote it? Who did he write it to and why? Those are the questions that Moses is answering. And if you get that, just that, the Bible will start to unfold in ways that you can't imagine. Okay, so what did Moses, he's, he's telling these stories, they're starting to write them down out there on the plains of Moab, they're getting ready to go into 
the promised land, and he's telling them these stories, and he's telling them chapter 2. He's explaining to them what chapter 2 is. And what he's saying to them, listen carefully, because this is the key, folks, to not only this part of the Bible, but almost everything else that you read. Now, I'm making some pretty bold statements about a lot of big things. If you, if you trust me and you listen, you will be amazed. Listen carefully. Moses is telling this original audience of people, these Israelites, out on the plains of Moab, why they're there and where they're going and why they're going there. He wants them to understand something. Here's what he wants them to understand. God is inviting you, you people, that have been enslaved in Egypt, He's inviting you back into the promised land. Back into the garden. We're going to nowhere less than the garden of Eden. And when we get there, we will find the tree of life. That's what He's telling these people. He's got to motivate them. If you know the story of Moses, if you've watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, for goodness sakes, probably every human being, and if you haven't, there's something wrong with you. If you've watched the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you know that there was a lot of opposition. Not everybody was on board with going out there. And they had lots of problems because they were in the wilderness. He's saying, we're going back. We're going to re-enter the land. We're going to crush, listen, going to crush the serpent. Nash, the serpent. We're going to crush him. We're going to take the land. We're going to purify it and make it holy again so that we can build God's temple there and He'll be present with us. And we can then feed on the tree of life in paradise again. And Moses is urging them on to go. And the reason that they knew that they were going back to the land of Egypt or back into the land of uh, Canaan, is because where was it? In the east. Where were they? Do you all know geography? Okay, Egypt is over here. This is west. And they're going towards New York City. This is El Paso. New York City is which way? Everybody say east. It's over there. See what he's saying? He's saying we're going to go back to the east because that's where the garden is. And here's what, he told, here's what he told them in this story. Not this exact one, but a couple chapters from here. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. Chapter 15. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. And he gave to you and your offspring this land. Everything from the river Euphrates, that's all the way to the, uh, uh, the uh, Gulf of of. The Persian Gulf, all the way from there to the river in Egypt, probably not the Nile, there were some other rivers, one of those rivers. That huge area was the land God had given to Abraham, their father. He said, I'm going to take you back there. We're going to go to the garden. We're going to go right into where the garden was, and we're going to begin to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Let's go. And God is going to do everything to make this journey successful. He is going to go before us in a pillar of cloud and fire. He's going to stay behind us and protect us from the bad people. And when we get there, He's going to crush the serpent. Trust me, Moses is saying. Trust me. And let's go. Now, let me tell you, 
Listen, everybody. That story has never changed. Every page in your Bible is that story. Going, crushing serpent, going into the promised land. It's the whole thing. Every story has to be understood in that idea, that context, why I'm spending some time on it. Avoid the disloyalty of Adam and Eve. We'll look at that next week. Return, re-enter, reverse, restore, reclaim the land, the original land grant given to Abraham, our father. Get rid of the pollution that's in the land. Make it a holy place because it was holy before when Adam and Eve were there. It was very good, very good. Trust me, I'll provide everything you need. And here's what Moses told them. Here's his exact words in Exodus chapter 19. He brought them to the mount, Mount Sinai, before the giving of the law, before the Ten Commandments is in chapter 20. This is chapter 19. This is before giving them any law, anything. God tells them why they're there and what they're going to do. And that has never changed. It's the same message to you. It was a gospel. It was good news. Same thing, same thing, all the same. Only for us it's a little different. I'll tell you about that in a minute. If you obey my voice, this is God speaking to you, the people of God, and them, the people of God. If you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter, the apostle of Jesus, used those exact words speaking about you and me. That we would be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of holy people who would reconquer the earth. The Toledov of heaven and earth is not, listen carefully, not just historical reportage. It's much too short, much too brief, too many details. He's not just telling us history. He's telling us history for a purpose. And here it is. Listen. He means that by these words to change you, transform you. You know, we hear a lot about God's unconditional love. There's no such thing. Every kind of love has a condition. And God's love has a condition as well. It's Himself. He's the condition. And so He's going to take you as you are. He's going he's to go into your life and be with you forever. Never leave you. But He's not going to leave you like you are. He's going to transform you. And He wants to make you a better you. But not just better morally. Mor- you know, morals are easy. You know that? Anybody can be moral. The Pharisees were moral. They were way moral than you and I. But not everybody can be holy. Because holiness and morality don't necessarily mean the same thing. Holiness means that God goes down and He finds unholy stuff, like you and me. Me, I, I know what I am. You all don't. You think I'm the pastor. That's a, that's a, that's a bunch of smoke and mirrors. I'm much worse. And you will never know. Mari V knows more than you do. But she doesn't even know. God knows what I am. And Ian left me the way I was. He's changing me. Continues to do it. All right, quickly. 
It's information for transformation. He wants to change. He wants to help you be you, but fully and completely. In other words, you alive instead of you dead. Okay. So what is the information that he wants to give them? Very quick, I want to get through this so I can talk to you about the other thing. Chapter 1 was about this. This is the information he gave us in chapter 1. God created, and the how, how he did it, we don't know, if, you know what exactly the mechanism was, but we know this, he did it by his word and by his spirit. And that's very significant. We talked about it the last two weeks. He created man as the apex of his creation. Only human beings have in them the capacity of the imago Dei, the image of God. And it is why, let me say this carefully and listen to me, it is why human beings can so wonderfully represent God and at the same time be so pathologically evil. See, if a lion wanders into a village and eats a baby, forgive me for the horrible example, but there it is. He goes in, do they get the lion and charge him with murder? What do they do to the lion? They put the lion to death. Moses said if an ox gores somebody and kills them, the ox must be put to death. But he wasn't killed because he was a sinner. He was killed because he was dangerous. A dangerous animal. That was, had, you know, didn't have control of his horns. Or the lion is a wild animal. It eats people and things. But they had no culpability. So there was no malice. Only human beings exhibit malice and hatred and evil to a degree that it staggers the mind. You read about these pathological killers, sociopaths and psychopaths, and you go, how can that be? There's nothing like that in any other created thing. Because we're the apex and we have God's image, we can be amazingly good, we can be amazingly bad. Only a human being would throw himself on a hand grenade to protect his, his brother or soldiers. Only a husband would give up everything in his life for the sake of his wife, even if she doesn't deserve it. Only the, only, we are only, only people capable, only things capable of doing that and knowing what it is. So humans are the apex. God rested. The rest means he enjoyed. He sat back and he was satisfied. It was complete. It was finished. And then he extends that rhythm of life to us. He says, you know, there's got to be time for you to work. Work is good. Work's not bad. Every religion in the world, by the way, says work is bad. Only Christianity says work is good. But you can only work so much, and so he wants you to rest, sit back, look at your work, and enjoy it. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. That's what the Sabbath is. And worship the Lord. Chapter 2 is is explaining why God endowed man. Listen carefully. Why he gave us his Imago Dei? What's going on? Why do you have that? Why are you special? Why are you just not an animal? Why does death bother us? 
doesn't matter. Why do we, we see somebody that's hurt or wounded or has some, some terrible disease? You know, the, when I went into the Texas Oncology, I think I told you I had cancer, bad cancer. I've had two. I went into Texas Oncology my first day uh, almost four years ago. I went, walk into Texas Oncology, and they're going to start chemo and radiation, right? Okay. So I walk in. I'm sitting in the waiting room, and I'm, my, my turn's coming up, and I'm looking around the room. And what do I see? I'm looking around. I go, I'm horrified. Look at all these sick people. Oh, my God. These people are really sick. I can't believe how sick they are. Somebody should do something for these people. And then my name, Chuck, <laughs> you're next. And three weeks later, I was them. I wasn't looking around at sick people anymore. I was looking at me. I was like, well, how did I? <laughs> I'm sicker than that guy. <laughs> he must be new. <laughs> All right, so you get that. You know, I can only use that on myself because it's me, but I, I'm telling you that because we don't identify ourselves very often with humanity in the way that we're capable of doing it's not a it's 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 a why not anything else it's not scientific look at verse 4 and we'll go through these really fast and then I'll make my point look at verse 4 it's the toledoth of heaven and earth but then he finishes the sentence and he reverses the words very important he says toledoth heaven is on earth then he said the this is the account or the record of the earth and the heavens so moses himself by use of language is switching the perspective he's saying the previous account of creation was god's action now we're going to be talking about earth and the man of the earth, the woman of the earth. Look at 5 and 6, how he describes it. It is pure, you know, these, whoever put these things together, Moses' writings, and they, put, you know, and, they, and they did work on them. They didn't just write it down like he was in a trance and write all this stuff down. It was him writing it. And his school of people, his other prophets and helpers that were writing this. Look at how masterfully Heavens and earth, earth and heaven. In the day that the Lord God made them. Now let me ask you something. What did he just told us in chapter 1? How long did it take? Six days. Now he says it only took him one day to create. And so St. Augustine and others said, God created everything like this. All at once. Boom. Then he made his divisions and his separations into uh, the three and three like I showed you. And that, th this goes way back. People understood this kind of thing. It's only modern people who are terrified that Charles Darwin is going to disprove Christianity. Folks, let me just speak to you as, as friend to friend and pastor to pastor and smarter person to less smarter people. You know, way smarter. <laughs> way smarter people. Look, Charles Darwin is dead. And he's in a grave somewhere. In fact, you can go visit his tomb, I, I guess. The person who wrote this, guess where he is? He's alive. You have nothing to fear. Science can't disprove anything. And we don't need to use our Bibles to refute them. In fact, we can just tell them, you know, you, you have nothing to say. 
You want to talk metaphysics? We'll talk metaphysics. You want to talk science? Let's talk science. You with me? Okay, good. Just want to make sure, because your kids are going to get hammered, by the way. I don't know. You've been hammered, and that's why we're desperate. But the kids are going to get hammered, too. So let's teach them the truth. And they will, they will go out into the world as a force that you can't, you can't imagine. The ground in 5 and 6, back to the text, is unproductive. In other words, it hadn't rained. There's just shrubs. In fact, the Hebrew word means there's, there's, there's not cultivated land out there yet. Because it hadn't rained. God hadn't sent any rain. There was just water coming out. There was plenty of water, but it's coming up from the ground. There's nothing being produced yet. It needs a man. It needs somebody to work it. That's what the text says. There's no bush. There's plants. The Lord God hadn't caused it to rain. And, and there was nobody to work the ground. So look at verse 7. So, what would logically be the next thing, since there's nobody to work the ground, what should God do? He makes the man. It's not chronology, folks. It's logic. He's just telling you the, the, the course of events. The land was unproductive, needed a gardener. He made the gardener. He made him from the dust, from the stuff of the earth, from the Adama. It, his name was Adam, and the stuff he was, the, the ground he was to take care of was called Adama. The author's using the language to tie these things together. The man was to be a man of the ground. Awesome. Look at verse 7. He was a sovereign craftsman. He's, uh, the, the words used here is he's, he's like a potter who's making, taking clay and shaping it. And he shapes this man who is supremely unique. And then he breathes into him, ruch. He breathes into him the breath of life. Now the other creatures in several places in, in Genesis it said that the other creatures that he made also had this phrase, breath of life. But they didn't get it like Adam did. Adam, God stooped over him somehow. We don't know. We don't know. Don't try to imagine this old man over this you know, thing. And, and, but metaphorically, he's stooping down and he is getting as close as a what? A kiss, an embrace, love. There's something there between God and His creation that nothing else has. Breath of life. And man became a living soul, a living creature. And other things have souls, by the way, but it's just saying that our life, our, yours and mine, why it's so precious is because of that. Because of that breath. Look at 8 and 9. Look at the verses. The next thing. God's special presence. The Lord planted. The Lord made the trees. The Lord put the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. He puts, In other words, the Lord is present in the garden so that now it is flourishing and man is there to take care of it and God is there. This is a a picture of a temple, a place where men, mankind and God interface, where they meet. And because they're there, because he's there with his gardener, it is going to be a verdant place, a place where things grow, where things produce, where things are good and very good. And it's in the, a garden, and it's in this massive land called Eden. 
And 10 through 14 is a description of that land, that huge land area, probably from the Persian Gulf clear to, the, to Egypt, what's called today the Fertile Crescent. I'm sure you all have heard of that, the Fertile Crescent. And God says we're going to go back there. He tells Moses we're going back there. We're going to take all these people back there because I promised their great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, it was his, we're going to go back and retake the land. Cool? It is. In verse 15 through 17, look at what happens next. He puts the man in the garden and he tells him, you can have any thing to do. You can do everything here. You can eat all of that. There's just one thing I don't want you to do. Don't eat from the knowledge of tree of good and evil. That one you are forbidden. It was a prohibition, a no. Everything else was yes. And just to give you the clue, here's what Adam said uh, in the next chapter, just so you can be thinking about it. Uh, parents, you've probably heard your kids say this because it, it's, it's that ridiculous. You never let me do anything. Now, there's not a parent in here that never lets their children do anything. Otherwise, they would be dead. Don't eat, don't breathe, don't do anything. Really? But that's the answer that our parents gave to God in chapter 3. You never let me do anything. They have everything, but they globalize it and say, you never let me do anything. Click. Off we go. And we're like that too. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Then there's a discordant note. Can't take too much time with this, although I will take a minute. In 18 to 20, you see that something is not good. It's not good for man to be in this garden all by himself. So God starts making animals. And he starts bringing the animals to the man to help him. And the man is naming the animals, which shows that he is sovereign over them, that he is above them, and that he's to care for them in the garden using them. But then there's this phrase, but there wasn't. He brought him all these animals, but none of the animals were suitable for him because the mandate that is given to humanity is to go out and fill the earth. What's he going to fill it with? Elephants? What is he going to fill the world with? Puppies? Might have been a better choice, but he decided to fill it with people. So in order to have people, you got to have a woman. And so he forms not from the dust, but from the side of the man, from a rib, it says rib, the woman. And there's a whole world that we could talk about. In fact, maybe we'll just do that next week. We'll talk about just that one thing, the woman and the side and, and how cool that is. He didn't make the woman from dust. He didn't breathe into her nostrils breath of life. He took the woman from the man, and that's all I'm going to say. Come back next week. It'll blow your mind. It did mine. And she is supremely unique and image bearer as well. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now I'm sure all of you are wondering why he called her woman. Do you know? Anyone know? So when he first saw her, he went, whoa, man. <laughs> All right. That was, 
You're going to leave your father and mother, become one flesh. There's going to be new DNA, cellular division. This is how multiplication would happen. Uh, it didn't mean that they were to go away or get away from their parents, although some of us want to do that. I don't. I love my parents. We have a perfect relationship. It's my brother they're trying to get away from, and he's sitting over there. Uh, no, he's not talking about leaving them. He's talking about creating a new unit and from that unit making another unit and those units and units and units. And units. That's how you fill, okay? Uh, so Moses is talking. Let me finish real quickly. Listen to me. This is so cool. He's talking about transformation. He's giving them this information so that they would know that they are to be, they're on the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to go in and fight some wars, some battles, and they're going to be pretty horrific. And they're getting ready to go, and Moses is telling them, we are, go back, we are going back to re-enter God's temple, God's land, and we're going to have to purify it. This is the business about killing everybody and everything. We'll talk about that later too. You've got to go back in there. We've got to purify this. And then we are going to be a holy people, uh, uh, not of warriors to God, but priests to God. We're going to serve in the tabernacle, the temple of God in this garden. We're going to make it verdant and beautiful. And we're going to fill the earth with people. We're not just going to stay in Palestine. We're not just going to stay in the garden because that's where Pal- that's what Palestine is the garden. That's where it was. I don't know if it was there geographically, but that's where it was now. That's the stories telling us, go here, this is where it is. And on that mountain, I'm going to build my temple, and I'm going to kill the lamb on this hill for you. Wow. And he's telling them, don't let, when you go back there, don't listen to the serpent. Don't listen to Nahash, because he's a liar. And so don't believe all those lies out there about idols and Baal and Chemosh and Molech and all these other. Don't go do that stuff. Don't bring that stuff in front of me. I don't want to see that. Serpents out, we're in. And I'll give you everything you need. I'll, I'll even do this. I'll go this far for you. I'll make bread rain down from heaven for you. Just trust me. I'll make water come out of rocks for you. Just trust me. Your clothes won't even wear out. Trust me. Your, your families will flourish. You'll have babies coming out. You know where they come from. They'll, they'll be coming out the kazoo. You'll be fertile. The land will be fertile. Nobody will be. One will come against you. 10,000 will come against you. But I'll make them all run away. Just one of you will have to go out and get 10,000. He's talking in hyperbole, but he's saying... I will be with you. We'll go back to the garden, re-enter the garden, crush the serpent, put the presence of God there and go and, and spread the goodness of God, the glory of God, the, the, the beauty to the rest of the earth. Just don't eat from the tree. And what happened? Well, folks, let me tell you. This is what happened. From here to here. And there goes my marker. Okay. You see it? That's what you're holding in your hands in your lap or maybe you've gotten a drawer at your house. This is what happened. One heartbreaking failure after another because these people would not trust him. 
And everything else you read in the Bible is why we don't trust Him. Why we balk at Him. Why we don't listen. And then, I don't even need to look at my notes. I'll just tell you. Then, someone was born who listened to every word And he went into the wilderness, same place they went, and he faced the same darn serpent, the same one. And the serpent came to him and said, Oh, Hesh, Hesh. That's why he's called the Hesh. Did God say that uh, you shouldn't eat from this tree? Why? I mean, gosh, Jesus, you can just do like this and make those stones bread. And what did he say? Man shall not live by bread alone. Oh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, I understand that. And then he gives and gives him another time. Three times, Nash comes to Jesus and tells him that. And Jesus refuses him. I'd rather starve than listen to you. I'd rather never have enough but a drop of water on my lips than listen to you. I don't need all the kingdoms of the earth given to me because they're mine already. And I will worship the Lord my God Perfectly, I will not fail. And he crushed the serpent. Right there, right then, the blood, first blood was drawn. And from that point forward, Jesus, everything, think about his life, think about it. Everything he did, everything he said was an appeal, begging you, begging me, begging that audience. Come with me. Trust me. Let's re-enter the garden together. If you trust me, I'll give you everything you need. Just trust me. And by golly, we did the same thing. We went straight to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we took our Savior and nailed Him up there. We did that. And he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and said, I'll go. Another garden. He went into the wilderness. Matthew said, out of the wilderness I've called my son. Here he comes. And we do the same thing again. The difference is that this Adam, this one, came with a whole different set of stuff. He came and baptized with Holy Spirit. He didn't baptize with water. He was the bread from heaven, the light of the world, the water of life, the the prophet that Moses said would come. He was the priest, the great high priest who brings the sacrifice into the temple. He was the king, the heir of David. He was the true vine, he said in John chapter 15. He was the true Israel. He was the final temple. He actually told them, I'm going to tear this temple down and I'm going to replace it in three days. And they went away scratching their head. How was he going to do this? took 40 years to build this temple. Well, I don't know. How did he do that? He rose from the dead in three days. Jesus Christ was stripped naked. You see, in the garden, they were naked and unashamed. And Jesus got stripped naked and became shamed for us, took our shame. And the second Adam, the Apostle Paul called him the second Adam, crushed 
the serpent's head. Let me tell you, I'm just going to tell you what paradise is because I know exactly what paradise is. And it's not a place. It's a person. That person is Jesus Christ. He's the tree of life. When I come to Him, and when you're going to come in a minute to this holy table, and you're just going to taste a bit of the fruit of that tree of life. A little taste, a morsel of the tree of life. I know what the paradise is. And I hope you know it too. And here it is. It's life without shame. Life without guilt. Life without shame. It's life that you're clothed with a person who is beautiful and perfect and went through this for you and me. The second Adam crushes the serpent and says, follow me, will you trust me? That's all he's asking. Will you trust me? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, what a sad and miserable history mankind has inflicted on this poor world. And we've done it all ourselves. We do it gladly sometimes. We don't know what it is to follow you and and listen to you and eat from the tree of life. But you've asked us, you've invited us to re-enter paradise with Jesus and that he has gone before us and conquered the enemy, completely crushed the serpent, put the stake through his heart. And Father, we pray that you would please change us, transform us, Lord, make us people willing to go out into the byways, highways, and places of this earth and spread the beauty and glory and grace of your tree of life. Jesus, our Lord, please help us. Amen.